Welcome to What Does This Mean?, a discussion of the Bible readings that are assigned in many Christian churches for this upcoming Sunday. Today is an exciting day. It is snakes, devils, angels, and, of course, St. Paul giving a lecture. So we are off to the wilderness. Welcome to Lent. We're glad that you've joined us. We're so glad that you've joined us. I'm Pastor Bradley Schmeling. And I'm Pastor Javen Swanson. And we are very sorry to say that Pastor Lois Palmeyer is not with us today. She is at home nursing the cold that has slowly worked its way through the staff, with the exception maybe of you, Pastor I think I am the only one. Yeah, Pastor Lois has a voice not for radio today. (laughs) That's right. She kind of sounds like a frog. Well, we're glad that you all have joined us. We are beginning into the season of Lent, uh, which is a period of 40 days where we prepare to celebrate the great festival of Easter. It's an ancient season. Originally, people would prepare for their baptism at Easter, and the 40 days before were kind of the last intensive period of renewing their faith, kind of coming back to God and being, trying to be the kind of person that they felt like God was calling them to be. So all of those themes come up again in these 40 days. 40 days is a biblical way of saying kind of a long time. And you'll see in some of the readings today why 40 days for Lent is important. But once again, we are inviting special guests to be with us on the podcast. And today we welcome Robin Sirio. We're so glad that you are here. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, um, I am so happy to be here. I love the podcast, so this is just a really fun thing for me to be a part of. My name is Robin Sirio, and my husband, Andy, and my two daughters, Maddie and Abby, live in Egan. We uh, have been members of Gloria Day for maybe two weeks, uh, just a few (laughs) weeks, but we've been attending for about a year and a half. My background is in art education and art history, and uh, but my primary job is to be a stay-at-home parent. I volunteer a lot in the community, and at Gloria Day, I volunteer at let's see, the Archive Committee and the Art Committee. What kind of things do you do in the community? I volunteer at the Girls' School District, doing things on the Equity and Inclusion Advisory Council, I'm a parent leader group, and then I've also been a part of several nonprofit boards. So were you an art teacher in a previous incarnation or? No. No? Um, My dream was to work in an art museum in the education department, helping to design curriculum for schools and teachers, but that did not come to pass. The Twin Cities has a huge art community and it's pretty hard to get those types of positions. Is there a type of art or a period of art history that's especially interesting to you? Maybe Renaissance Italy is a very good one, but also contemporary art has a special place in my heart as well. Thank you. Well, we're so glad that you're here. Why don't we jump into the texts and um, maybe we can imagine what these texts look like in medieval art as we we go through. Love that. Our first reading for today is from Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3. It skips around a little bit. Um, Chapter 2, verses 15 through 17 and chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. 
The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. For all the readings today, the theme that came through for me is that it seemed to be a question between free will and the will of God. And so for this reading in particular, I thought, how does free will factor into this story? Because if God loves us unconditionally, why do we have this story where free will leads to punishment for everyone, basically uh, paying the price for the sins of Adam and Eve. Well, way to go to jump into the big, giant (laughs) theological questions like right away. (laughs) We can't just talk about the simple things. We have to go right to original sin. Right, and free will, and why is there a tree? In a way, some of those questions, I'm not sure that we can really provide an answer that works. But these are the questions that human beings have asked both of our experience and of these texts, I think, from the very beginning. Like, why? Why is it this way? Because it does describe our experience of kind of being caught, I think, between who we know God to be and who we are and how those things come together. So whatever the answer to the big theological question is, I feel like this text describes a real human experience. For me, it's a story about our human desire to want to be in charge, to be able to be independent and to not have to be second to anything, including God. So when I think about that, the tree that gives them knowledge of good and evil I think it's less about sort of knowledge like, oh, now I understand. Now I understand better. I think it's more like I want to be able to be the like decider about good. And I want to be the one who gets to control what good and evil is. And I mean, it says here, and you will be like God knowing good and evil. And so it's almost like there's this temptation for us to want to be able to not have to depend on anything, including God. And I think that's what is judged in this passage from early on in Genesis. It's this never-ending temptation that we have to be completely independent and to make a life for ourselves. 
Robin, when you think back to learning about the Christian faith, what comes to your mind about this free will question? What kind of things were told to you in confirmation or Sunday school, if you can remember? I can totally remember. The way it was presented in my faith tradition was that this was an example of how you needed to follow God, that God knew what was best, and that you shouldn't question what God is asking you to do. That always seemed kind of wrong to me, like, shouldn't we be able to ask a question? But your faith wasn't strong if you asked those questions. And that was one of the questions I had for you was, you know, this feels like you should have blind faith, but that doesn't seem like that's what God wants us to do. You know, I think God's okay with us asking questions. So that feels like a bit of a disconnect. Yeah, I think that's a really great thing to raise because I do think that the passage isn't trying to get us to blindly follow God or not to ask questions or not to explore or even I think the desire to be like God can actually be a good impulse because it can be about wanting goodness and righteousness and wanting the the world to work in the way that God would have it work. So I don't think this is about a blind obedience, but I do wonder, is it about our struggle with limits, that when we do bump up against the limits of what we can know or what we can experience, that there's something to respect about the boundary. Maybe Walter Brueggemann, who's a Old Testament scholar, writes about this passage. And he thinks a lot about um, boundaries being set down and that there are some boundaries that God says, you don't cross that Or you don't boundary. get to, you don't get to know that. You don't get to decide that. Right. <laughs> like, right. that's my domain. Yeah. When right. you think in, in the the Me Too conversation or in any conversation we have about respecting one another, our, our, the limits we have in human relationships and how there is a propensity in a lot of us just to cross over those boundaries because we want something. And this text says, hey, there's there are boundaries that are laid down for a reason. And it isn't necessarily about you needing to understand that boundary. There was one other thing that was um, taught to me growing up, and that was that Eve is the temptress who is sort mm. of tempts Adam to evil and or to, you know, take a bite of the fruit. And I wondered, how would this story have read to people, contemporaneous readers of this story? You, again, you raise a great point, is how sexism shapes the way we actually even hear the story. Because in the story, there's no uh, implied judgment that she's necessarily the one, you know, because Adam eats the fruit too. I mean, they both do it. In a way, she's the initiator in the story. And so there's a kind of power in, in her. Maybe that's not so bad. She's sort of engaging the question. I've always sort of wondered how people get that interpretation out of this. If you just read the passage and take it at face value, all you get is that there's that throwaway line, and she also gave some to her husband. Like that's the so, and she becomes this temptress, right, you know, right, who, luring him to evil. Yeah, yeah, right. It's like that's not at all what it says. One another thing that Walter Brueggemann says about this text is that the the real sin in this conversation is that the snake and Eve are talking about God rather than engaging with God. 
in this question about should we eat the fruit. So it's the first theological conversation, but without the presence of God in that conversation and the risk for us when we sort of fall into big theological conversations without actually being in a relationship with the one who yearns to walk with us and to be in relationship in these really deep, human, challenging struggles that we face. Maybe it's not about a right or a wrong answer, but who we're in conversation with. We should also say just real quick that in this story, the snake isn't described as evil either. We have all these ideas of the snake as the devil. He's crafty. Uh, yeah, he's crafty. That's all it is. He's kind of, yeah, he's a conversationalist. That's a very good point. I didn't even clue into that because it was always taught that the uh, snake is the devil, and yeah. it did not even occur and to me. That's a much later interpretation of this passage. It's not there in the original text. Well, let's take a little break, and we'll be right back with our second reading. Welcome back. Our second reading is from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 5, verses 12 through 19. Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death came through sin, and so death spread to all because all have sinned, sin was indeed in the world before the law, but sin is not reckoned when there is no law. Yet death exercised dominion from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sins were not like the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died through the one man's trespass, much more surely have the grace of God and the free gift in the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many." And the free gift is not like the effect of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brings justification. If because of the one man's trespass, death exercised dominion through that one, much more surely will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness exercise dominion in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. For just as the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. I feel like this one really just speaks for itself. Paul is really so crystal clear in his writing. <laughs> I don't know that there's really much for us to that, say. It is just a challenge reading that <laughs> text. It, yes, it was very convoluted. <laughs> I had a hard time with it. As I was trying to follow the free gifts and the laws and the, all of the different things that they were talking about, in verse 13, it says, Sin was indeed in the world before the law, but sin is not reckoned when there is no law. What law is it referring to? 
So I think Paul's referring to the Old Testament law, like the law is sort of shorthand for all the things that Moses spoke to the people from the mountain. So the Ten Commandments and everything else, you know, all these things that you read in Deuteronomy. Okay. And so then in verse 16, it's talking about a free gift. So is that referring to Jesus dying for our sins? Is that the free gift? Yeah, I think the he really what he's doing is comparing the way Adam was with the way Christ okay. was. And that if one was disobedient and brought sin, the other the other's obedience and righteousness and goodness brings life to to all. So I think it is Jesus freely offering himself for the sake of the world that um, initiates something new at work in the whole creation. Just as like sin came in and began to distort our relationships with each other, our relationships with God, and set that up from generation to generation, it's now something new is injected into human experience that causes a turn in how we experience ourselves, one another, God. Augsburg Fortress, which is our publishing company, has this great little introduction to the reading that makes much more sense, I think, than the actual reading itself. It says, Through Adam's disobedience, humanity came under bondage to sin and death, from which we cannot free ourselves. In Christ's obedient death, God graciously showers on us the free gift of liberation and life. So it's sort of like Adam initiates this age of brokenness and sort of bondage to sin, and Christ initiates this age of liberation and life despite sinfulness, which is a helpful way for me to interpret this passage. I get a little stuck on the word obedience, you know, Jesus's obedience, and it makes it seem as though he has a choice to be crucified because I am a contrarian at heart. What if Jesus would have said no? Like, nope, I'm not going to do it. Well, he struggles with that. You know, there's the story where in the garden where he says, you know, if this cup can be taken away from me, please, let's not go through this, you know, but not my will, but yours be done. But so you get this glimpse into Jesus' own internal struggle about um, what he is feeling called into. Because I I think it isn't helpful to imagine that Jesus always was just this kind of blind, obedient, follower and just always did the right thing, because that makes Jesus seem kind of inaccessible to our own experience. And I think we'll see this in the gospel reading is that Jesus has a struggle with who he's going to be, just like we all do, and that that doesn't always come necessarily easy to him. Um, He manages to make the kind of right choices, and in that way, we say he was obedient. Um, I don't think that means like this idea that God is just sort of up in heaven saying, all right, Jesus, make the right decisions and you you just be obedient to me. I think it's Jesus taking seriously the real internal struggles. Like, what does it mean to be me in the world? And we all have that struggle. I think that scene with Jesus in the garden that you were talking about is really relatable. You know, he ends up making the obedient decision. But I think we all have those moments of like 
praying in the garden that we'll have strength to do what needs to be done and what we know God is calling us to do. Right. Um, and more often than not, I feel like I don't live up to <laughs> the challenge, which is partly why Jesus is inspiring to us is that Jesus shows us how to have strength to persevere and to be focused on God's will and to persevere in that despite the hardships that will come along the way. Let's take a break and be right back with the gospel. Welcome back. And our gospel reading for today is from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him, and suddenly angels came and waited on him. So my first question is, uh, the very first verse of this reading says that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Was Jesus aware that by going into the wilderness that he would have to face these temptations, or was it like a surprise that he just felt he was going into the wilderness and didn't know it was happening? It may be important to note that this story follows immediately after his baptism, that he has this experience of God calling him to this mission to be the anointed one, to be the Messiah. And so he goes from that awareness into the wilderness to figure out what that means. So I always kind of imagine that this is, he is taking this time out, this 40 days in the wilderness, which we get the 40 days for Lent from here, to kind of figure out what does it mean to be the anointed one? And so he's thinking about what that looks like. And so the the devil, whether that is the literal, you know, devil showing up in a little red outfit, you know, with the pitchfork, or whether these are the voices within him saying, here's some different ways you could do this. And which ones are you going to choose? Are you going to do it this way or 
or this way? Are you going to use your power to feed yourself? Or are you going to use your power for good? At the tail end of the reading, it says, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. I remember being taught that that meant you shouldn't worship worldly things. And that was given, that verse or that idea was given as a reason for that. So what is both of your take on that? Well, there is, you know, like the first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. So I guess this is sort of consistent with that in a sense. And and I've always sort of like... You know, I think it's it's not just worldly things to me. You know, I think to me, we worship all sorts of idols and all sorts of things can end up becoming more important to us than God. And um, whenever we notice that starting to happen, I feel like that is a time for us to go back to whether it's this, worship the Lord your God or the first commandment, you know, just to say, what's really going on in my life <laughs> right now? How am I orienting myself and what am I really grounded on what is my foundation. I think those are important things for us to wrestle with. Right. And again, I I think about this relation that worship isn't, you know, this task you accomplish. It's about a relationship with God is to place yourself into the presence of God. And the issue here is the devil is trying to get Jesus to find a source for his life other than the presence of God. It's like, look, if all these nations can bow down to you, you will have their adoration, their glory, and sort of suggesting, ooh, that could be the source for who you are and how you are in the world. And Jesus is like, no, that's not the source. The source is the presence of God. Just to bring Pastor Lois into it, uh, even though she isn't here, one thing that she would say in the Seekers and Skeptics um, group is that um, if it's not good news for everybody, it's not good news. And so I think that kind of works here and that, you know, for Jesus— what he's being tempted to do isn't good news for everybody. It would just be good news for him. That's that's a really beautiful thought. And that's actually a great way to end the podcast for today. And we thank all of you for listening. We want to know what you hear. So feel free to drop us an email at pastors at org. Especially we thank you, Robin, for being here. It was really great to be in conversation with you about these texts. Thank you to Paul D'Amico Carper for providing the music for us and to Marshall Saunders of Minnesota Podcasting for producing these podcasts for us. Join us for worship every Sunday morning at 8.15 or 10.45 and during the season of Lent on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. Thank you so much for joining us today. Know that God is with you, God loves you, and God will provide what you need for today. This has been What Does This Mean? A podcast created by Gloria Day Lutheran Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. You can find Gloria Day online at www.gloriadaystpaul.org. This podcast has been produced by Minnesota Podcasting, and they can be found online at www.mnpodcasting.com. 